0: Okay, so we're Luke chapter 16 today, verses 14 through 18. I, um, in the first service, I opened to John chapter 16. Don't have any idea how, how that happened, but I started to look for the verses and I couldn't find them. So, so I'm thankful that I got a chance to practice before the service. Um, but so, so here we are, Luke chapter 16. This is a continuation of uh, Jesus'—it's it, been really kind of a long discourse of Jesus' teaching— um, Come on. You'll want me to start my timer or else we'll be here longer than you want to be here. Uh, but So Jesus has been teaching. We're kind of stepping into what's happened. And we begin to see the reaction of people to Jesus' teaching. Now let me just set it up for you before we read. So Jesus... It, his teaching challenged everybody. It wasn't like there was a certain particular people that found it more challenging or convicting than others. Uh, some people just responded to it differently. For example, his he taught in such a way that it offered hope to the vilest and most uh, offensive or unacceptable of sinners. And that's why the tax collectors and sinners were, were coming to him, gathering to him. In fact, at the, at the beginning of this discourse, back in Luke chapter 15, at the very opening of that chapter, it says the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. Them, and he was teaching them, sitting down and eating with them. And, and, and it wasn't that he was ignoring their sin or not speaking about their sin. You can read through the, through, through the book of Luke, through the, through the Gospels, and see that Jesus was constantly confronting people in sin and, and calling them to repentance. That was the heart of his message. But his truth as he brought it was saturated with grace. Grace. And in that, they, they heard their sin, and they were, they were convicted and confronted with their sin. But in it, they also heard of the hope that was being made available to them. And in part, that's why the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus sitting and teaching these vile people, these people they had deemed unworthy, that's why they began to grumble. But that wasn't the only reason they grumbled. Because his teaching was also given in such a way that it even convicted them. It it, it challenged even the most moral, the most religious, the most upright person. It it challenged them in their life of their sin. For example, at the end of chapter 15, again, we could go back and and see that. At the end of chapter 15, he, he depicts the Pharisees as the older brother in the story of the lost son or the man with two brothers, or the prodigal son, however you know that story. And they, he, he portrays him as the older brother who cared more about his father's possessions than he cared about his father or he cared about his own brother. He also taught in such a way, and this is what we saw last week, that the repentant sinners that had become his disciples, the repentant sinners that had begun to follow him, he taught in such a way that he was constantly calling them to repentance. That repentance wasn't a one-time event. That repentance or, or turning from your sin had, had become a lifestyle. And now that they, were, that they had recognized their sin, that they were continued to walk away from their sin. Continue to follow him. Continue to commit their life to him. To continue to, to, to live in the way that would honor him. And so as we saw that last week at the opening of, Je- of, John, of Luke chapter 16... The the, uh, the the disciples were being taught to live repentantly with their resources. To begin to hold everything that God had given them as his people, to begin to hold everything in light of eternity, to begin to steward the resources that God had given them wisely, not wastefully, to begin to use them in such a way that they, they paid forward to eternity or that they were used with eternity in mind. And they weren't looking for the short payoff or the, or the, the, the comfort in life, but that they were looking to provide for eternity. Now, one of these groups, and it might surprise you, but one of these groups was more offended than any other. Now, the tax collectors and sinners. Now, they, they they came to Jesus, and it's not like everyone received what he said and, and accepted it and liked it. Many of them would have heard his teaching, seen his miracles, and walked away and, and rejected him. But man, they're religious the highly religious, the highly moral, the ones who were trying to convince everyone around them that they had nothing worth repenting over, they couldn't stand his teaching. Couldn't stand it, and they rejected him. And they grumbled about him. And as you'll see in their response to him today, their response to his teaching today, they begin to ridicule him. But that doesn't stop Jesus. Jesus. He keeps teaching. He keeps bringing truth with grace. And that's kind of where we pick it up today. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 14, it says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. now so let me just... Let me just Put this back in perspective. So here we are, the Pharisees, they had been the point of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 15, and now they were listening in as Jesus taught his disciples in chapter 16, and, and they don't like it. They're bugged by it. They're bothered by it. They were lovers of money themselves. They heard what he was saying, and they ridiculed him. Their grumbling had progressed from just mumbling under their breath and progressed to ridiculing him to his face. And Jesus could have just walked away It has left them has let them deal with their perspectives and let them be angry and let them ridicule. He could have just walked away, written them off, but Jesus keeps teaching. But the words he's about to say are probably some of the most difficult he ever said to anyone. Some of, those, some, of, some of the most direct, some of the most condemning and convicting words he ever spoke. But let me, let me just say this before we get into them. If we'll just listen, we'll still be able to hear the gospel. We'll still be able to catch a glimpse of the grace that every one of his words of truth was saturated with. Verse 15, and he said to them, in response to their ridicule, in response to their harsh words, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were were, were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and Everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The Pharisees had a problem. I don't think they understood their problem. I don't think they fully grasped how how serious their problem was. The symptoms were there. It was like uh, At one point I had, I had gallstones and I eventually ended up having to have my gallbladder out. But I was, I was headed to China on a mission trip and, and I had this this pain in my gut and I would eat and about 30 minutes later it'd be, oh man, it was just serious pain. Some of the worst pain I've ever known in my life. I, I couldn't get comfortable. I would, sometimes it was so bad I'd end up throwing up. I mean, it was just intense pain and the, so there's these symptoms but but I didn't want to find out what it was because I didn't want to end up going and, and or not being able to go to China on this short term mission trip and so we do end up at the doctor at one point and, and he's like well the symptoms are there here's your problem you see that's the reality of what happens when we get sick when we have problems when our bodies are failing there's symptoms that show us the issue but we can ignore them we can just completely be blind to them or we can decide that we're not going to pay any attention to them that's ultimately what I did And for years I ignored it, and finally, like 10 years later, I ended up getting my gallbladder removed. Well, These these Pharisees, this is is them. They they, they have a problem. And they're seeking to ignore it. They're they're turning a blind eye to it. They're they're trying to, to not see the symptoms of it. And because they can't see their problem, because they won't admit to their problem when Jesus sits and eats with tax collectors and sinners, rather than rejoice over the fact that sinful people get to hear the good news of the gospel, they grumble. They complain about it. They look down on Jesus and his work and they decide that his mission has nothing to do with them. Then in in, in response to that, he begins teaching and he begins poking at them and begins prodding at them and convicting them of sin and highlighting the issues that they have. They they, they don't like that. They begin to ridicule. They begin to speak ill of Jesus. The language is actually, they turn up their nose to them. And there was one commentator that said that that a a translation could be as literal as they blew their nose on him. Now, I don't know, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I mean, that's, that's how they thought of Jesus. I think that means they did not like him. I I don't know if you catch that or not, but if you blow your nose on somebody, I'm assuming you don't care for that person. That was how they felt about Jesus. See, the thing is, is that they were done with him. They had no more use for him. They didn't like what he did. They didn't like what he said. I think it's a safe assumption they didn't like who he was. But they didn't understand their problem. You know what his teaching reveals? It reveals how serious their problem is. It ultimately reveals that they are no different, that they are sinners, just like the tax collectors and sinners that they're so despised, that they despise so much. See, ultimately, Jesus points out to them, and they can't stand it. At the Pharisees, with all their morality, with all their with all their religious practice, with all their religious garb—the the clothes and the robes and the and and, and the. And the prayer shawls that they'd put on and the phylacteries that they'd wrap around them. All, of the, all the religious garb, all the religious practice, all the religious effort, all of that didn't amount to anything. They were just as separated, just as unacceptable, just as distant from God as tax collectors and sinners. And God saw them as an abomination. But apart from the gospel apart from the gospel, this is the story of every person who has ever lived and who will ever live. See, we, like Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners, are all being crushed by the weights of legalism. I've got to measure up. I've got to perform well enough, good enough. Or lawlessness, I'll determine my own way. Apart from the gospel, we are being crushed by these two perspectives. But because of the gospel, because of God's work through Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, because of the gospel, we have been freed from legalism and lawlessness and freed to live by grace in obedience, to live under his rule, to live under his reign and no longer be crushed and condemned, but be blessed and encouraged and so we start off, we see this point, that the, 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 the spectrum of sin is illustrated. I showed this to you a couple of weeks ago. I think it's important that we kind of put it back out here for our understanding today. I think it's important to the, to the context of the passage. We have the spectrum of sin. And it's, it's basically how we consider sin in all of its forms, from, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And on one end of the spectrum, we have lawlessness, that's license, that's, that's doing whatever I want to do, deciding my own way. It's a lack of restraint, a life without external authority. In fact, I mean, this is, this is in many ways what happens in the Garden of Eden. When God says, uh, you, shan't, you, shouldn't, you, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the serpent comes in and he says, what did God really say that? Hmm, I don't know. Did he? Well, that food looks good. That's going to make me wise. That's a throwing off of authority. It's a lawlessness. It's a lack of restraint. A determining that I'm going to be my own authority. That I'm going to determine what's right and wrong. What I'm, I'm going to determine what's good for me and bad for me. And I just would make a note about this. This is a lie. There's no such thing. There's no such place in which we can live uh, without authority, that we can live without some someone ruling over us, now I think it 's interesting that we, we don 't deal with it in these four verses specifically, but it 's been building to this place in the in the in the context of jesus 's teaching it's we 've seen it the last two weeks last week, as the passage closes in verse thirteen, Jesus says, "No servant can serve two masters for neither." For either he will hate the one or love the other, and, or, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I pointed out last week that it was interesting that Jesus didn't give a third option. That you're going to be the one commanding other things. Like, you're going to be the one owning money. You're going to be ruling yourself. And I think he didn't give that option because that option doesn't exist. Even possessions and the word "money," though it's translated in English, is the word "mammon." It would have been speaking of, of earthly possessions, not specifically our dollar bills, but the possessions and the wealth we have, even though there's times and ways we, th- we think we own it. It really ultimately, when we're given to it completely, when it's our God, or when, we, when, when that's the thing we look to for happiness and joy and satisfaction. It begins to own us. I used the, I, I used the, the, the cartoon last week of the dog that was the, whose owner was behind it picking up its mess and was like, oh, who owns who here? I'm like, the dogs have got us trained, right? We're picking up after them. We're providing all of their meals. We're making sure their homes are comfortable and a safe place for them to live. Who owns who? Even in our possessions, they begin to own us. They begin to rule over us. And and regardless of what language we use about them, there's a reality that we will always be subject to something. We will always be under something's authority. Again, in in the week before, in the the story of the father with the two sons, the, the, the lost son, the younger brother, was leaving his father to gain independence. And ultimately what ends up happening is the the language, the text, says he glued himself, he subjected himself, he tied himself, he made himself the slave of, owned by, a pig farmer. Because his wealth ran out. It couldn't provide him the independence. He couldn't live under his own authority. He was going to be owned in some way. And so he finds himself subject to a pig farmer. And that's when he decides, wait a minute, I'd rather be under the service of my father. The servants in my father's house are better off than me. You See, the point is that we will always be under authority. I said it then and I'll say it now. We'll either be slaves to sin or we're going to be slaves to righteousness. There is no such position as truly being in our own authority. Lawlessness is a lot. Because what ends up happening is we begin to write our own laws and they begin to control us and they begin to own us. In fact, we begin to apply them to other people. So eventually lawlessness becomes legalism and it's almost indistinguishable because we're always going to be under some authority. On the other hand, on the other end of that spectrum, you have legalism. Now, let me, let me just go back. I, I, I need you to see. This is where the tax collectors and the sinners, if we were going to classify these people, the tax collectors and sinners would have fit under this lawlessness. Like the Pharisees would have looked at them and said, they're not religious. They're not following the law. They're not, they're not doing what God says they should do. So that's where they fit. But then you have the Pharisees. Who sit in legalism. And I would define that as this. Is that it's acceptance based on performance of strict rules. Concerned more with what to do or not to do. So we have these laws of, 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 of do this and laws of don't do this. And, and I, I just follow the law and I don't care what my motive is. And I don't care what the purpose is. I don't care about the inworking of, of that law. All I care about is what it looks like on the outside. And at the end of the day we can be legalistic about all kinds of things. Those laws can come from all kinds of places. I'm more tolerant than other people. Did you know that about me? I'm the most tolerant person in this room. I'll bet you anything. Aren't I good? Don't you want to come up here and pat me on the back? Why aren't you as tolerant as me? You know, I bet I'm not just more tolerant because, you know, that's what makes a good person. I'm more merciful. Boy, if you knew how merciful I was. I am so merciful. Did you know that I volunteered at the elementary school, out of the goodness of my heart to love on those little kids? You know I sit on the board of Go 61, the you know, human trafficking organization that, that associated with our church. I'm so merciful. Why aren't you as merciful as me? I'm more theologically accurate. Man, if everybody believed the way I do about the scriptures, then God would love you just as much as he loves me, wouldn't he? I'm a better church member. It's easy to compare ourselves to the people in this room, and I mean, this, I'm, I serve on the hospitality team. I make sure there's always a smile at the door and coffee in a cup. Boy, people are glad to come up and see me standing there, smiling why isn't everybody as good as me? I'm a better child, a better sibling, a better spouse, or a better parent than other people. Who hasn't written these laws? Who hasn't compared themselves and expected these things of other people? Who hasn't looked at each other or other people and judged them because, boy, you're just not as good as me? I'm a better steward. You know, he talked about stewarding last week. You should see my bank account. I give 10% plus. If everybody was as generous and good a steward as I am, boy, then God could get some work done in this world. Look at all the good I do. Look at how good I am. I am better than everyone else else I just wish they'd all be like me we all write these laws we all live by these laws we all have a tendency to be Pharisees in our own hearts but there's a law that matters more than any law we could possibly write and it's the law I think that God is or or that Jesus was referring to in this passage It's the law that God handed down. It's the law that God provided as he he entered into covenant with his people. It's the law that he said, this is the way you should be. And these Pharisees, they had a problem. They had studied the law. They knew it inside and out. They, they, They were certain of it, but they had a problem. They were seeking to justify themselves by it. They were totally misusing, misunderstanding it, misapplying it, and, and in some ways destroying it. Look at what Jesus says to them. In response to their ridicule, in response to, in, in response to their complaints, he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves. What he's saying to them is, hey, did you know that you're trying to say that you're righteous based on what you do? You're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to earn your favor. You're trying to work yourself into righteousness. You are trying to prove to God that he owes you his blessing, that he owes you his kingdom, that he owes you his grace. You're trying to justify yourselves. But it's not happening doesn't matter how many people pat you on the back and tell you how good you are. Acceptability to God is not the measure of what God considers acceptable. Or acceptability to man is not the standard of God's acceptance. Let me say it like that. I think I messed that up. Acceptability to God is not God's standard of Acceptance. He's not looking out and seeing how many people are patting you on the back or affirming you in your legalistic tendencies and saying, oh man, I'm finally, I'm so glad you finally measured up. If that's what we're counting on, then we, like the Pharisees, have a problem. We have a serious problem. Because that is an abomination. Abomination. It's detestable, it's defiled, it's filthy, it's unacceptable. The truth is, is that word, that word lumps the Pharisees in. And these were moral people, right? Like they weren't people who were walking around just living horrible lives. These were moral people. But it lumps them in with the sexual, uh, the, the fornicators, the sexual sinners, it lumps them in with the, the tax collectors, the adulterers, the prostitutes. They are no better. Their lives in seeking to justify themselves are an abomination. And he doesn't leave them wondering. Like he doesn't say, well, say this and just not give them. There's no. It's not like there's no clues to to how this is shown in their life. I Man, he gets specific. Luke points out one of them for us because Jesus has already implied it. It's an editorial note given to us by Luke, but Jesus has already made this emphasis in his teaching. Luke opens it up and says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. So they had heard Jesus just say, you can't serve God and money. You're going to be mastered by one and despise the other. You're going to love the one and dishonor the other. You're not going to be happy. And they didn't like it. They couldn't stand it because they loved their money. They loved their things. They looked at their things as a measure of success, as a measure of God's blessing. They they determined that because we have stuff, God must love us. They loved their money. Jesus points out that they are covetousness and they are idolaters. And you see this play out, not just in in that command that he gave or not just in that statement that he made, but but also as he depicts them or portrays them in in the parable of the lost son. Remember, they're the older brother. The older brother, when he heard about his father's party for his younger brother, got angry. And why did he get angry? I've been with you. I've done all these things. I've earned my place. And I've not even gotten a goat. And you killed the calf for him. He was angry because he was having to share His stuff. The father sees the younger brother coming back. He runs out to him and he meets him and he hugs him and he kisses him. And the the son is like, I'm not even worthy of being your father. And the father's like, I don't care, be quiet. Hey servant, go and get me the best robe and put it on his back. And, And the older brother's like, that's my robe. That's my stuff. Why are you giving it to him? Put the ring on his finger. That's my ring, the older brother says. Those are my shoes you're putting on his feet. And that's my calf. That's my fatted calf. Where is my cow? You see, these Pharisees, they loved their money. They loved their possessions. And they couldn't believe that in some way they were going to have to share the kingdom of God with the likes of tax collectors and sinners. They didn't want anybody to enjoy those blessings but them. They didn't want anybody to enjoy that stuff but them. They loved their money more than they loved their God. Jesus says, your filthy works are an abomination. You're not justifying yourselves. You're proving yourselves guilty. He goes so far as to say, you justify yourselves or you strive to justify yourselves, but God knows your heart. They are not just covetousness or, or covetous. They are not just idolaters who love money more than they love God. They are hypocrites. What is true about them on the outside is not true about them on the inside. God knows your hearts. Oh, they were quick to look down on the tax collectors and sinners, but they ignored the truth about who they were. They ignored the realities about why they did what they did. And then Jesus hits them in a place that would unsettle them. You see it in verse 18. And he says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I need to just give you a side note here Jesus is not giving us an extensive teaching on divorce and remarriage. Okay, this is not the end all be all of what the scripture or even what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. So I don't want you to hear this and I don't want you to go get crazy and, and, and start reacting to all these things. Jesus is using the essence. He's using the ethic of God's law to show them that they are not measuring up, that they are as guilty of sexual sin as any prostitute or any other adulterer. You see, here's the thing. What they would do is they t- in, in, in obeying the law, they realize, well, this stuff is too difficult. Like I don't like my wife, so I need a new one. And so they go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You can go and read about it yourself. There's laws about divorce, and, and you can read. And it says that in the case of some indecency, if some indecency is found, divorce is allowed. Right? And so what they do is, over time, the rabbis start sitting around, they start talking about, well, hey, this is what I think indecency means. She burned your food. That's indecent. Like, I don't like a well-done steak. I want my medium. You're done. I need another wife, one that can cook. And if she can't cook, I'll find another wife. One, one, one report is that they, if they weren't attracted to them anymore, or if a wife let herself go in some way, then, then oh, I can just divorce you. That's indecent. You look indecent. Now, Jesus, he does give some explanation. I think when, he, when, when he's confronted by the Pharisees and tested on divorce, he actually says that for, the, for, the, for, for adultery, for sexual immorality, a, a, a person, a, a husband can divorce his wife. Now, there, there, there is that allowance. It's always an allowance. It's never a command. But what he's showing these Pharisees is that they aren't even really even upholding the law. Not only are they covetous, not only are they idolaters, not only are they hypocrites, they're lawbreakers. They've never once upheld the law. Even in their legalism, they're not holding to the law. Philip Riken, one of the commentators that I read from, uh, comments on this passage, and he says it this way. This is what legalism always does. It makes a great show of keeping the law But in fact, it ends up destroying the law. Because when the law is preserved in all of its perfection, it is too demanding for sinners to keep. So here they are. Not following God's law. Changing it. Rearranging it. Interpreting it. So that they can, in some way, act as if they're obeying it. Because they long to justify themselves. And Jesus says, it won't work. This is an abomination. As hard as it is to hear, as hard as it is for me to say, so are we. Apart from the gospel, we are just like Pharisees. Legalists who become lawless because we've just destroyed the law that that we seem to promote to everyone else lawless like the tax collectors and the sinners because we don't really want anybody else telling us how we should live. This is the scripture's clear. We read part of that passage earlier. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. He goes on to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God If we stand in front of the mirror of God's law, take an honest assessment of ourselves, the law will do exactly as God intended it to do. It will show us to be sinners who need a Savior. This is difficult. These are challenging words. But in the middle of it, in the middle of it, if we'll just listen, we can hear the gospel. Verse sixteen and seventeen. Jesus kind of kind of steps in and 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 gives this bit of instruction. He says the law and prophets were until John. Since then. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Listen, listen, there's a mistake. There's a, there's a, there's a misnomer and misunderstanding about the law. We, we hear this and we automatically want to say, oh, well, in the old days, in the Old Testament, they got saved by obeying the law. And in the new days, now we get saved by faith. Well, well Paul undoes all of that. This is not plan A, the law, and plan B, the gospel. These are are different stops along the same history of redemption. This is more like phase one of the gospel, phase two of the gospel. Their hope is this. The law was theirs, given to them. But it was never meant to stand alone. It was given purpose. It was given reason for existence. John Calvin tells us three reasons that the law existed. He tells us that it was so that, so that God's people would know God's righteousness and be able to see their sin. So God's righteous and we're not. The law proves that. The second thing it did was it would restrain people who were afraid. like just, just It would restrain evil. The third purpose, he says, that it was given was that God's people would know how to act. They would know what to do. And this is shown even in the Old Testament. We can see this as the Israelites come out of Egypt, as they are delivered by God out of Egypt, and they're standing at the foot of the mountain, and they're entering into covenant with God, and he gives them the law, and he's about to speak the Ten Commandments. Do you know how the Ten Commandments start? You can go look it up. I'm not going to turn there at this point. It starts with an expression of uh, of grace and gospel truth. I am the Lord your God. Who delivered you out of Egypt? Who brought you out of slavery? And that becomes the conditional phrase that sets up the rest of the commandments. That's not a commandment. It's a statement of fact. It's an indicative. It's the reason that the commandments exist. I am the Lord your God. I'm giving you these commandments because I have authority over you and you are my people. And now if you're going to be my people, this is what life looks like as my people. We see it happen in the, Old Test- or the New Testament as well as Jesus has, has died and, and raised and now he's with his disciples. Those people who have, who have repented of their sins, who have trusted in him for salvation. Those people, he says to them, I have authority. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I have been given all authority. All authority. You hear that? All authority. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. You see, this idea is God's people are called to obey, but we are stuck with this problem. Apart from the gospel, we're all wrestling with legalism, seeking to prove ourselves, our lawlessness, seeking to go away of our own. We're all stuck with this weight, and it's killing us. It's crushing us. And Jesus says the law and the prophets were there. They were given to show men their sin, their need for a Savior. And then the prophets come along and they look back at the law and they say, hey, there's one coming. There's one coming, look for Him. There's one coming that will fulfill all these promises and will do all of these things. He will be the one we're waiting for. And John the Baptist enters the picture and here comes John the Baptist and John the Baptist walks up and he's the last of the Old Testament prophets and he's the first of the New Testament preachers. He's a transitionary figure. Because he begins to be the voice of the one crying in the desert, Repent, make straight the path of the Lord. He's calling God's people, Israel, to return to God's law, to God's rule, to God's sovereign reign over their lives. And then he says, The one who's coming, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy of tying his shoes. And so that day, standing in preaching and then baptizing. Jesus comes to him and he puts Jesus in the water and he pulls Jesus up and the heavens opening and, 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 and God the Father speaks and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This one that John had said was coming was being presented to him right then and there. The Holy Spirit comes down as a dove. He had been waiting and watching for these things. So he knew that Jesus is the one. And so then a few days later, I don't know how long it was, but sometime later, Jesus is walking towards him. John's out doing his thing. He's preaching about the the, the one that's to come. The one that has come. The kingdom is coming. The reign and rule of God is here. And he sees Jesus coming. You can read about it in John chapter 1. He sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold... The Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. He is now not just preaching Old Testament prophecy. He is preaching New Testament gospel. Jesus has come to take away sins of the world. This is good news. You know why it's good news? Because the law is never going to pass away. And we will either be condemned by it, or we will begin to live in obedience because the gospel has changed our hearts. God's reign, it's here to stay, His kingdom has come. And the death and resurrection of our Savior is good news because now instead of being crushed by God's sovereign reign and sovereign rule, now we can be blessed beneath it. We can be blessed by it. Apart from the gospel, we will be crushed by the curse that comes from the law. We will be crushed by legalism and lawlessness because it's all sin. It's all rebellion. In fact, it gets so muddy in the middle we don't even really know which end of the spectrum we're on. But because of the gospel we can live in obedience to the sovereign God who rules all things. Listen, obedience is neither legalism or lawlessness. Rather It is our faith put into action. James is writing and he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not writing a new law. He's not writing a new new thing. He illustrates this. If you go and read about it, you can go and read the whole context. He illustrates this by pointing to Abraham, the father of our faith. The one whose faith was counted to him as righteousness. And how do we know his faith was real? He was willing to offer up his son on the altar. He points at Ahab. How do we know her faith was real? She was willing to hide the the spies as they came into Jericho. There's a reality that their faith wasn't just in word. It was followed by obedience. It was exemplified in obedience. Obedience is not us earning our way into heaven. It is not us going our own way and determining our own path. It is our faith, our trust in 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 a death That is not our own but was in our place for our sin. It's trust in a resurrection. That gives us life. It's believing it so completely that it directs the way we live. I I long to obey this God who saved me. Because I believe he is the God who saved me. Obedience is not legalism or lawlessness. It is love. Love applied. We're always always going to devote ourselves, give ourselves to the thing we love most. Jesus says in, in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And we love our possessions, our lives will be given and devoted to making sure we maintain and even increase our possessions if our lives are dominated by our earthly relationships and we just approve, just, uh, just love the acceptance and the approval and the admiration we get from people, we will give our lives to, to making sure we continue to get that admiration and acceptance. But if we love Jesus, we can't help but hear the things he says and long to live in light of them. Long to do them because our love will always lead to our devotion. It will always lead to our obedience. Obedience isn't our working our way into heaven or going our own way. It is simply the natural reaction of loving our Christ most. Obedience. Obedience is neither legalism or lawlessness, it is an act of Worship, Romans 12, 1 says, and I should have put 12, uh, 1, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, giving up yourself, giving uh, giving up your desires, giving up your uh, up your own life, just walking away from it, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on to say that, the, that by the renewing of our mind, that we begin to understand the will of God. We begin to be able to walk in obedience because the renewing of our mind, because of the giving up of our own selfish desires and our own selfish ways. Obedience is simply worshiping God. And so you think about it. As you walk in this room this morning, there's some of you that are here because you think that this is what pleases God or makes God accept you. Hey, God, I showed up. Got to make sure I get to heaven when, when I die. And then you say, well, I'm going to worship. But really what you're doing is you're going to the place where you think you're justifying yourself so that God will bring you to heaven when you die. Others think, well, we don't need church. I can worship God away from church. I can worship God in my own way. I don't need to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no such thing as worship that doesn't involve obedience. We cannot worship Him if we're not obedient to Him. Obedience is neither legalism or lawlessness. Rather, it is the right response to God's gospel of grace. It is the only right response to God's gospel of grace. We could say it with faith and repentance. That's really obedience. But in the way our lives are shaped, the way we live every day as a result of His gospel, should always look like obedience. First, Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to a scattered and suffering church. And he opens his letter. Actually, Peter does this all the way through his letter. He gives us a picture of the gospel. He gives us some great gospel truth. And then he applies it. And and he does that early on in chapter 1. He gives us some great gospel truths. And then he comes to chapter 1, verse 13. And he writes this. Therefore, we could translate it just as easily. Because of the gospel that I've just told you about. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we don't just look back on what Jesus has done; we look forward to what Jesus is coming to do. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Obedient children are no longer conformed to the ways they used to live. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In Obedience. We are responding in the only right way to the Father, but how do we do that? By living in obedience to all that He has commanded. You see, we're free from legalism and we're free from lawlessness and we're free to obedience. We're free now because of the gospel to obey Christ and see those efforts and see those works. Honor him and be good before him. Repent then. Repent of your legalism. Repent of your your lawlessness. Do anything you can. Brothers and sisters, do anything you can. Whatever it takes. Kill your flesh. Die to yourself. Take this. Do not let it pass. Jesus says, they are taking it by force. So let me encourage you. Take it by force. Believe so fully in him that you will not let anything of this world get in your way, whatever its cost. Run to the gospel. And having entered the gospel, live then in obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know we are unworthy. Never easy to consider words that are confrontational, convicting. And never, even, never, never easy to preach them. But thank you for the reminder that we don't stand in your presence because of who we are or what we've done. But we stand in your presence by grace. And by the power of your grace, we can now obey. Spirit, would you move on your people today? Would you convict us of our own legalism? Of our own lawlessness? Confront us as necessary. Move on our hearts That we might be obedient. That we might repent of both and walk in this third way. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, for your victory over death, and for all that you blessed us with, your people. And the hope we have because of your perfect obedience, because of your fulfillment of the law, I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.